You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 20. We're going to be looking together today at verses 24 through 29 of John 20. Let's bow together before we begin. Father, we are so thankful for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and every week we come here to celebrate that reality and its implications uh, afresh, the implications for your people and what it means for us in, in walking in holiness and in loving you and in believing upon him. And so it is our desire that you would glorify yourself through your word and that you would confirm in our hearts the truth that is here stated and that you would send your spirit to do that work of, of, confirm, of confirming us and convicting us and, and encouraging us in those things in which we find ourselves doubting, and that we may walk away from here more firmly entrenched in our belief and our commitment to Jesus Christ and more firmly aware of what that means and uh, in ways in which we doubt you. We pray that you would encourage our hearts to, to believe and to, um, and to understand what you have done and what you are doing. May we trust you wholeheartedly as a result of our time in your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have looked at five of the ten resurrection appearances of Jesus, uh, five of the ten that are recorded in Scripture. We have no reason to think that there were only ten, though we do know that only ten of them are mentioned in Scripture and recorded by the the writers of the New Testament. Uh, When John says that many other signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, uh, John seems to be aware that there were other disciples who wrote of other miracles and even that there were other appearances and miracles of Jesus which are not recorded in any of the scriptures. And I would think that that would also apply to the resurrection appearances of Jesus, that though we know of ten, that there were probably more. Luke says Jesus appeared to his disciples over the course of 40 days with many infallible and convincing proofs. And five of them we have looked at, and that takes us all the way through the end of that first Sunday evening. And those five appearances, just to review, are to Mary Magdalene, and then to the other women, and then to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then to Peter, and the fifth one was to the disciples in that room with Thomas absent. And so that brings us now to John chapter 20, verse 24, which uh, is the next appearance in uh, the series that John gives to us. So let's read together verses 24 through 29. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came and the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. This is the sixth appearance of Jesus, and there is a week between these two that John records, that the first of one that ends in verse 23, and the next appearance. It is eight days later that this next appearance occurs. Out of the ten, um, the ten appearances that are recorded in Scripture, John mentions and records four of them. Uh, one of those four is recorded by John and only mentioned by Mark. Uh, one other gospel writer, and that's the appearance to Mary Magdalene. 
The second appearance that John records is recorded by John, obviously, and also recorded by Luke. And then there are two appearances that only John records. And this is one of those two appearances. This is it is only because of John that we know that Thomas was absent from the first time that Jesus appeared to his disciples. And it is only because of John that we have the record of Jesus appearance to his disciple Thomas or to the rest of the disciples with Thomas present. And this appearance to Thomas present fits in with John's theme, the whole book. It fits in with John's theme because one of John's main themes is belief. And John has contrasted real belief with fake belief, saving belief with that type of belief that does not save the mere intellectual consent. And throughout the book, John has been arguing for us to believe. He has shown us the benefits of believing. He has implored for us to believe. He has, he has begged us to believe. He has given us evidence to believe. He has recorded these things so that we might believe. And he has given evidence of those who saw the miracles and saw the signs and yet remained hardened in their unbelief. And he has explained to us that that unbelief is due to not a lack of evidence because there was plenty of evidence, but because of a love for darkness. These men love darkness and that is why they did not believe. And so since one of the main themes is belief versus unbelief and all the reasons why we should believe, this appearance to Thomas fits right in with that theme because here we have a disciple who initially did not believe, not that he didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God or the Christ or the Messiah or sent from God or any of that, but that he did not believe in the reality of the resurrection. And not only did he not believe that, he refused to believe that and stated his unbelief, but then when presented with the evidence, Thomas did believe. When he saw with his own eyes what the other disciples saw with their own eyes, Thomas believed as well. So now we have the journey of one of the disciples who would eventually become an apostle, making this, making this trip from unbelief into belief. And this is the story of that. And so it kind of fits in with John's uh, overall theme. And so that we would expect John to, sh- to reveal this to us because uh, he has been arguing that we would be, like Jesus said to Thomas, not unbelieving, but believing. And so there is an argument here that this evidence that Jesus presented to Thomas should indeed convince us and we should move from unbelief to belief as well. All right. So we're this 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 appearance to Thomas is renowned for two things. Number one, because of Thomas's unwielding statement of skepticism and doubt and unbelief. Unless I see with my own eyes, unless I put my finger into the palm of his hand and I thrust my hand into that spear wound where there was in his side, unless that is true and I see for myself I will not believe. So he lays down the gauntlet of what he considered to be proof worthy of his belief. And then it is also renowned because of Thomas's statement without ever touching Jesus, but only seeing him when Thomas says, my Lord and my God. One of the most magnificent statements in all of this gospel from I will not believe to my Lord and my God. So this this miracle or this appearance of Jesus is well known for that reason. First, Thomas' statement of unbelief and then his confession of belief. And, and that will serve as our, our sort of our outline for this morning. First, his confession or his statement of unbelief, his expression of unbelief in verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, again, it's only because of John that we know that Thomas was not there. Thomas, who was called Didymus, and the word Didymus means twin. So apparently Thomas was one of a twin. Uh, he had a twin brother or a twin sister. And Scripture mentions nothing of Thomas's twin. We don't know what his or her name was. We don't know whether it was a male or a female, just that Thomas, one of the 12 disciples, he had a twin. And interestingly enough, all of the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they mention Thomas, but they don't give any details of Thomas, about Thomas. Everything we know about Thomas, we glean from the Gospel of John. Because Thomas appears not just in this section, but in two previous episodes in the Gospel of John. So everything that we can discern from Thomas comes because John told us about Thomas. So he is the twin, he is Didymus, and what do we learn about Thomas? There are two previous 
episodes where Thomas uh, comes onto the scene, and I will give them both to you. In John chapter 11, when Lazarus was sick and then Lazarus dies, Jesus, knowing that Lazarus was sick and knowing that Lazarus was going to die, he waited long enough so that Lazarus would die, so that when he went to Lazarus's home and he raised Lazarus from the dead, he would receive more glory. It would be more of a demonstration of his power and his majesty than if he just healed uh, Lazarus while Lazarus was sick. And so when it, when Lazarus died, then Jesus said, let us get up and go to Bethany where Lazarus is. And Jesus knew that his intention was to raise Lazarus from the dead. But Jesus and all of the disciples knew that Bethany, being just two miles outside of Jerusalem, that that was hostile territory. Because all of the Jews in Jerusalem were already plotting and planning the murder of Jesus. And the disciples knew that. And so when Jesus said, let us go to Bethany so that we may visit them and that he may resurrect Lazarus from the dead. This is what Thomas said. Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Hear the despair in that statement? Let us also go so that we may die with him. Something of a pessimistic statement. The second time Thomas is mentioned is after Judas had left the room in the upper, uh, the upper room on that final evening. And after Judas had left the room, Jesus began to teach his disciples that he was going to leave them. And where he was going, they could not come. He was going to prepare a place for them. And he said, and Jesus said, where I go, you know, in the way you know. And then Thomas said this, 14 verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. And we do not know the way. And again, it's a negative statement. It's a pessimistic statement. And here you have, again, Thomas saying, unless I see in his hands the mark and put my finger there and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. All three of these statements that come from the lips of Thomas tell us something about Thomas's character. At least something that I think we can discern. And it is this, that Thomas was something of a pessimistic, negative individual. And that is at least what we discern from these three statements. Now, some have suggested that that was his besetting sin. Whether it was his besetting sin or not, it seems, at least from the record of John, that every time Thomas assessed the situation, he saw the negative in it. He was something of the pessimist in the group, the, the dour individual who, in, in every situation, every circumstance, he saw the negative and, and he would comment on the negative. Do you know somebody like that? You ever met somebody like that? You laugh. Some of you are nudging. Some of you are glancing down the aisle. There's no need to indicate who you might be thinking of, but you probably all of us know somebody who is who who in every situation in life just sees that the negative stands out to them. Whether they comment on it or not, they just kind of they're pessimistic. An optimist is somebody who takes lemons and makes lemonade. The pessimist is somebody who drinks the lemonade and then reminds you after all it was made out of lemons. So Thomas is the Eeyore of the group. Remember Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? That's Thomas. He's the Eeyore of the group. Oh bother. Let us go with him and we will die too. We do not know the way and we don't know where you're going. And my Eeyore impression is pretty good. <laughs> Thomas is the Eeyore of the group. Now, why wasn't Thomas there when he met with the rest of, when the rest of the disciples gathered there? This is something of, a, of an interesting detail, isn't it? That Thomas would be gone? Why was Thomas? Where was he at? Notice that John doesn't say anything about why Thomas was missing and where, where Thomas was at. In fact, John doesn't tell us if Thomas had a good excuse or a reason for not being there. He doesn't say anything about it maybe being a, a besmirchment on his character that he wasn't there with the other disciples. John just mentions that he wasn't there. We can come up with a couple of reasons. Let me speculate and give you a couple. It's possible that maybe Thomas, knowing like the other disciples did, that the Jews were, that they had reason to fear the Jews because the room around, ta- the room around town was that the disciples had stolen the body. And maybe Thomas, like the other disciples, expected that he would be arrested and maybe put to death as a co-conspirator with Jesus, that the Jewish leadership was after the disciples as well. If that was his fear, maybe Thomas had gone into hiding and he was he had really gone dark and that none of the disciples could find Thomas. It's also possible that Thomas, being from Galilee, sometime after the crucifixion of Jesus, 
on, on Friday afternoon, evening, or even on Saturday, had traveled back up into Galilee and was on his way home and was probably maybe too far away to get back to Jerusalem in time for the meeting that Sunday evening after news of the resurrection had broken out. Or it might be that Thomas was being the pessimist, just didn't feel like socializing with the other disciples. And if, you, if you know that the Jewish leadership is after our whole band, why make it easy for him and all of us get in the same place, right? Why should we all collect together, put all of our eggs in one basket, as it were? Maybe Thomas just knew that the meeting was going to take place, but he had no desire to be there, no desire to socialize. He's still distraught and distressed and upset over what has unfolded in the last couple of days. And he, like the other disciples, had heard reports of women who say they saw angels and the angels were saying Jesus was alive. They didn't believe the women. They didn't know what to make of these reports. And they had he had no evidence of, of that himself. And he's probably not even interested in investigating these claims or even going to the tomb or maybe finding out anything about it. Or maybe he just slept through the meeting. Ultimately, we don't know why Thomas wasn't there because John doesn't tell us. But he wasn't there. Verse 25. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. Now, J.C. Ryle in his commentary suggests that this happened immediately after Jesus uh, departed from the previous uh, appearance. That, In other words, um, the, 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 that Sunday night, the first resurrection Sunday night when Jesus appeared to the disciples and Thomas was absent, that as soon as Jesus left, Thomas walked in the door. He was late for the meeting. And the disciples were there. And when Thomas walked in, they said, wait, we've seen the Lord. He was just here just seconds ago. You just missed him. And uh, J.C. Ryle makes the note in his commentary that uh, that is a good reason why you should never be late to church, because you miss all the good stuff if you're late for church. And uh, Matthew Henry actually suggested that this is a reason that Thomas not being there when the disciples gathered together is another reason why you shouldn't miss church entirely. If you miss church entirely, you obviously miss out on meeting with Jesus and his people and that Thomas only had himself to blame. I don't know that we can go to any of those lengths in describing this situation and, and drawing an analogy from it. But it could be that sometime during that following week, a couple of days later, maybe Thomas finally arrived back in Jerusalem. He met with some of the disciples and they said to him, we have seen the Lord. And, and that statement there is, is in think, I think, intended to summarize all that the disciples would have said to Thomas. We have seen with our own eyes the Lord. And I don't think that they just would have said, look, we saw a vision or an apparition. You can imagine that the conversation between Thomas and the other disciples would have would have been something like this. We have seen the Lord. Well, I didn't see him and I wasn't there. Are you sure that you saw him? Are you sure it wasn't a spirit? Are you sure it wasn't a vision? Are you sure you weren't hallucinating? Where did you see him and when? And what did he look like? And they would have said, no, we, we saw him. It was him. We saw in his hands the print of the nails. He showed us the wound in his side. We we felt his flesh. We saw it. He told to he told us. A spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Feel me and see. We saw him alive, Thomas. I don't know. That's a hard sell. Then he asked us, do you have anything here to eat? And we gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it in our presence. Spirits don't eat fish, Thomas. Spirits don't make fish disappear like that. We saw the fish. He ate it. It was gone. We felt him. We saw it with our own eyes, but Thomas did not believe. And, and keep in mind that the testimony that he is not believing is the testimony of ten close friends. They had spent years together. They knew each other. They knew each other well. He knew their integrity. He knew the type of character that these men were. He knew, he knew that they themselves were not the type to believe just anything, just any report without any kind of evidence. Thomas knew these men, and Thomas trusted these men. And keep in mind that Thomas' statement of unbelief is not just unbelieving and not believing those ten men, but there were others as well. At that first meeting, there were the ten men. There were the two men on the road to Emmaus. That's twelve. 
And Luke says that at that gathering, there were others as well. In other words, Luke accounts for those ten disciples and the two on the road to Emmaus and others, plural. That means at least two. That means that Thomas is denying or rejecting the testimony of 14 eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And so Thomas lays down his gauntlet for proof. Unless I see, you say that you have seen, but unless I see it with my own eyes and I can personally verify this, I will not believe. I must see the wounds in his hands. And what is Thomas asking for there? He he wants to see it with his own eyes. He wants personal verification. But when he says, unless I see in his hands the wounds and I put my hand into his side, what is Thomas wanting to verify with that? He is wanting to verify that the one standing before him is the same one who died on that cross, who suffered those wounds. Thomas could not get over the reality of the crucifixion. And he did not think that the, the event of the crucifixion was something that would just be easily reversed. You can't just overturn that. Thomas was a good empiricist. He was a rationalist. In many ways, he was a skeptic and a doubter. Because what he wanted before he believed something unbelievable... He wanted some form of proof. And so Thomas lays down a standard for proof that none of the other disciples verbalized. They may have had this standard in their minds, but none of them verbalized it. Thomas said, unless I see it for myself and I touch it myself, I will not believe. He would not be easily convinced. You're not going to deceive me with a spirit or a vision or a phantom or an apparition or a hallucination. I'm not going to be easily taken in again. Now, force Thomas' statement. He has earned the moniker, the nickname, Doubting Thomas. We have heard that, haven't we? Doubting Thomas. As if Thomas' statement for proof and his doubt and his skepticism, as if that was worse than what the other disciples had. Or as if the other disciples were more quick to believe than Thomas was. Now, Thomas may have been the last one to believe in terms of time, but I don't think that he was necessarily the slowest one to believe, was he? Was Thomas' response to the resurrection really any different than the other disciples? He gets the nickname Doubting Thomas, but how, how, how did the others fare? The two men on the road to Emmaus, when they were having the conversation, what did they say? All these things have happened and the women have come back and told us this is what was going on. And they've seen angels and the angels are talking about him being alive. And it seemed like nonsense to us. We don't know what to make of all of that. And Jesus said, you men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Those two men were slow to believe, Right? And Mary Magdalene walked in and she saw the grave clothes, walked into the tomb. She saw the grave clothes. The stone, the tomb was empty. The stone was rolled away. The empty grave clothes were there. Did she instantly believe the resurrection? No. When Jesus appeared and spoke to her, she didn't turn around assuming that it was Jesus. She thought it was a gardener. And it wasn't until Jesus said to her, Mary, that she recognized the voice and came to the great shepherd and understood who, who was talking to her. She was slow to believe. Luke says when he reports the events of that early Easter morning that the the women came back and reported to the disciples all that they had seen and all that they had heard. And Luke says, but these things seemed like nonsense to them. The the disciples didn't believe that. And even when Jesus appeared to the, the ten who were there that first Sunday evening, when Jesus appeared to them, what was their response? Jesus had to tell them, a spirit does not have flesh and bones like you see that I have. They thought they were seeing a spirit. They did not believe the resurrection. And then he had to pick up a piece of fish and eat the piece of fish in order to prove to them that he was risen from the dead. Was Thomas any slower to believe than the rest of them? Did he have any standard for, of evidence that was different than theirs? Does he really deserve the name Doubting Thomas or the moniker Doubting Thomas? I don't think he does, does because everybody that first Sunday morning was slow to believe. None of them expected it. All of them were slow to believe it. It took evidence and proof to convince them that this was indeed true. So Thomas is really no different in that 
in that sense, as if he had some sort of a different standard. Now, there are modern-day expressions of Thomas's kind of unbelief, and you have heard them. There are a couple things in Thomas's statement which are uh, that you will hear skeptics and critics and atheists, they'll say something like this. Uh, Thomas's statement, I, I will not believe unless I see it myself. Have you ever heard somebody say that they would not believe something unless they, they don't believe anything unless they can verify it by science, unless they can test it and measure it and prove it, right, and document it, and unless they themselves verify it, unless they themselves see it and hear it, they don't believe anything because they're the ultimate skeptics. Or they will say, I don't believe anything that is contrary to reason or science or nature or my experience. These things have to comport. They have to fit in within the laws of science before I will believe them. Skeptics love to put up these two different uh, objections. Let's deal with the first one. I don't believe anything unless reason dictates that anything is contrary to reason. I don't believe anything is contrary to nature or experience or science. Atheists will say this. But is that true? Well, they will say men don't rise from the dead. Well, you're right. They don't rise from the dead, right? When is the last time you went to a funeral and the body was gone because the person rose from the dead while you were waiting for the viewing? Does that ever happen to anybody? That doesn't happen to anybody. Men don't rise from the dead. Food doesn't fall from heaven. Men don't walk on water. Men don't uh, raise other people from the dead. Men don't come back to life after they have been crucified. This, these are the laws of the universe. This is the laws of nature. These are how things normally are. And some skeptics will say, unless, uh, be, unless it is, comports with reason and experience and nature and what I know to be true, I will not believe it. And yet they believe all kinds of things that contradict reason and nature and experience and science. They believe that the universe popped into existence 15 billion years ago out of nothing for no reason without a cause. Is this scientific? That's not scientific. Is that reasonable or rational? That's not reasonable or rational. Is that something you experience? Do things pop into existence around you all the time out of nothing without a cause? Does that happen? When you wake up in the morning, you see a, a different car parked in your driveway. Do you say to yourself, well, it probably just popped into existence overnight out of nothing without a cause? Or do you ask yourself, who's here? Who's staying here? Who came? Who's parked in my driveway? These same atheists who say that they don't believe anything contrary to experience believe that everything popped into existence at some point 15 billion years ago out of nothing, that there was absolutely nothing, and then there was a microcosm which was everything, and that everything exploded into everything that we have today. And that is irrational, it is illogical, it is unscientific, it is completely unfounded, it's absurd nonsense, and it's contrary to experience. And those same atheists, if the atheist man gets up in the morning and he opens up his underwear drawer and he sees in his underwear drawer a, piece of, a pair of underwear that is folded up that he's never worn in his life, it's not even his size, it's different, he's never seen it before, he's never had them on, and he holds it up to his wife and he says, where did these come from? And she says, well, uh, well, uh, they, uh, uh, they just popped into existence overnight. I'm not sure how they got there. They weren't there yesterday. Now they're there today. I don't know where they came from. Things pop into existence all the time. Do you think the atheist would say, of course, it happened with the universe. Why wouldn't I expect that to happen every day all the time? If everything else came into being out of nothing, why wouldn't a pair of underwear magically appear in my drawer out of nothing? Do you think he says that? No, because his experience tells him that these things don't happen. The atheist who says that they believe things because... Because it, it, it comports with reason and experience and nature and science. They're lying to you. They believe all kinds of unreasonable, unnatural, unscientific things just to get away from believing the truth. The second objection, I don't believe anything unless I can see it, unless I can verify it, unless I, I know about it truthfully. I can measure it and weigh it. Unless I can verify it with my own senses. Some atheists will say that. I know that two plus two is four because I can take two apples and two apples and count them and they're four. Right? I know what the weight of water is. I know how water boils. I know at what temperature it is because I can measure these things. I can demonstrate these things. So I only believe things that I can personally verify. Is that true? Hold their own standard to the, hold them up to their own standard with the objections that they raise. Because they'll say, well, the Bible's full of contradictions and myths. 
and uh, all kinds of errors that have crept in over the course of years. Really, were you there? Did you verify the errors? Did you see them done yourself? Have you tested the errors? Do you know this for true? Or are you believing the testimony of other men who have told you that this is so? I believe these things, that, as Scripture records them, didn't actually happen. They didn't happen that way. And so there was something that happened, and all of this myth kind of attached itself to it to make it more than it actually was. But that's not actually the way that it unfolded. Moses didn't actually part the sea and walk through on dry ground with uh, millions of people in tow, the entire nation out of out of Egypt. They, they took boats and they walked around, or it was a low tide, and they, and they kind of walked through in the marsh. That wasn't actually how it happened. Really, were you there? Did you test it? Did you verify it? Have you measured it? Witnessed it yourself? Because that's the standard by which you say that you're going to believe everything. As it turns out, we believe all kinds of things from the testimony of other people that we cannot verify, and even dead people. In fact, most of what we believe and know to be true we know to be true and we believe it based upon the testimony of others, things that we cannot and do not verify at all. These same atheists believe that everything popped into existence 15 billion years ago out of nothing. Were they there? Did they see it? Can they test it? Can they repeat it? Can they verify it? Who told them this? No, they believed it because of the testimony of somebody else. Right? They believe that dinosaurs became extinct 65 million years ago because an asteroid hit the earth or because there was too much methane in the atmosphere, because they too, smoked too many cigarettes each day, and so they, they died out. For whatever silly, goofy reason it is that they believe it, which is the reason of the day, that's what they believe. And they believe it having never been there, having never verified it, having never tested it, or seen it, or witnessed it themselves at all. They believe Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address. Why? Because they were there. They heard it with their own ears, saw it with their own eyes. How do they even know Abraham Lincoln lived? Only because of the testimony of other men who wrote it down who are now dead. And they believe their testimony. They believe that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated in Ford's Theater by John Wilkes Booth. Were they there? Did they see it? Were they witness to it? Can they measure it? No, they believe it. What? On the testimony of men who saw it and wrote it down. And they have believed their testimony. We have the testimony of John and Peter and Paul and Matthew and Luke. Men who saw these things and witnessed these things. And they wrote them down to us. And it is no more irrational for us to believe the written testimony of men than it is for the atheist to believe what he believes to be true because he is basing it on the written testimony of men. This standard that Thomas lays out here is an irrational standard. It is a standard that nobody, no matter how ardent the skeptic says they are, no matter how ardent the doubter, nobody holds themselves and the, what they believe up to this standard. Unless I see it, I will not believe it, and I will not believe anything that does not comport with reason and rationality and science. As it turns out, we believe all kinds of things that we can't prove, and we believe all kinds of things, and just talking about in the natural realm, things we can't prove, and we believe all kinds of things on the testimony of other men who saw them and wrote them down and then died and passed down their writings to us. All right, that's Thomas' statement of unbelief. And I could go on giving other examples only because it's so much fun. But let's move on to Thomas' confession of faith, his confession of faith and belief. This is in verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them, Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst, and said, Peace be with you. Now you notice how similar this is to the event that happened on the previous Sunday. The, the location very well may be the same. It is the same day of the week, by the way. John says it was eight days. Remember how the Jews counted days? They included the day that you're talking about, the first day, as day one. So if, if, we, if we were Jews and we were describing eight days from now, that would be next Sunday, not next Monday. We would count that eight days, but the Jews would describe today as day one, tomorrow as day two, so the eighth day would be the following Sunday. So this is, again, a one week by our reckoning, eight days, by the way, they counted and reckoned days, so it is the following Sunday. The location is probably the same. The situation seems to be very similar. They're in a room. The doors are shut, and the, the implication is that they were locked, 
and we assume that it was probably for the same reason that they locked the doors the previous Sunday evening when they met together. We don't know what brought them there. Maybe they said, hey, if we, if we all get together in the same room at the same thing and do the same thing all over again, maybe he will appear again. But they all arrive in this room. They lock the doors. And so the setting and everything seems very similar. And this time Jesus appeared to them. Again, I don't think because he was passing through solid objects. Listen to last week if you want to know why. Uh, and Jesus appeared in their midst and he greeted them the exact same way. Peace be with you. Notice that up in verse 19 and in verse 21. It's the same greeting Jesus gave him the previous week. But then he directs or turns his attention directly to Thomas in verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, he singled Thomas out and listen to what he says. Reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now, Thomas had demanded a certain standard of evidence. And Jesus, though he did not need to provide this evidence to Thomas, though he had every reason to cast Thomas off because of his unbelief and his skepticism, Jesus didn't do that. Instead, he provided Thomas the very evidence that Thomas demanded. Uh, J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on the gospel, says this, It is hard to imagine anything more tiresome and provoking than the conduct of Thomas when even the testimony of ten faithful brethren had no effect on him, and he doggedly declared, except I see with my own eyes and touch with my own hands, I will not believe. But it is impossible to imagine anything more patient and compassionate than our Lord's treatment of this weak disciple. He does not reject him or dismiss him or excommunicate him. He comes again at the end of a week, and apparently for the special benefit of Thomas. If nothing but the grossest, coarsest, and most material evidence could satisfy Thomas, then even that evidence was supplied. Surely this is love that passeth knowledge and a patience that passeth understanding. Those are good words. Jesus didn't have to do this. He could have excommunicated Thomas, but he doesn't. Instead, he graciously showed up, and this time for the sole benefit, well, not the sole benefit, but the primary benefit of Thomas, and with a focus on Thomas, and he provided the very evidence that Thomas demanded. And look at Thomas's confession in verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, the most magnificent words in this entire gospel. And in, in a sense, it is the perfect, a perfect capstone to put toward the end of this gospel. Remember, this gospel started off with the, the declaration that in the beginning was the Word. That Word was with God. That Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things are made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. And then later on, John says, that Word, which is the Lord Jesus, who was with God and was God, that Word was made flesh, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw the God made flesh. That was how John begins the gospel. And now towards the end of the gospel, after a period of doubt, Thomas makes this grand declaration, my Lord and my God. And the word kyrios there, the word Lord, can be translated sir or master. It's a term of respect, but can also refer to the Lord as in God who is the Lord. And in this context, because he couples it with my Lord and my God, it seems that we ought to allow that term Lord to contain all of the meaning that it could contain all of the majesty and, and, the, and the infinite expression that that could be. He is, he is giving to Jesus Christ, in his mind, the position of Christ being his Lord. And literally in the Greek it reads, the Lord of me and the God of me. That is his declaration. The Lord of me and the God of me. Christ is both Lord and Christ is God. That is what Thomas came to recognize. Now notice that, notice that Thomas, it doesn't say anything about Thomas having touched him or actually put his hand into his side, or even felt the scars in his hands. Notice that it doesn't say that. Jesus challenged him with that, provided the evidence, and Thomas immediately gives this declaration. And in fact, in verse 29, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. 
And, and the, inten- the intention seems to be that Thomas didn't need the physical proof. When he saw Jesus with his own eyes, that was sufficient enough. And all of his doubts crumbled and all of his resistance crumbled. Now, though we call Thomas doubting Thomas, there is a sense in which I think that we can at least sympathize with Thomas. Now, this is not to say that his doubt was, was excusable, but it is understandable. We know that dead people do not come back to life. That is not the normal day-to-day experience of what we experience in this world. We know that to be true. There is a sense in which I can sympathize with Thomas that having gotten my hopes up that Jesus was the Messiah and that the kingdom was imminent and that we were going to enter into that kingdom and he was going to usher in this time of blessing and then watching all of that crumble and fall in front of my eyes at the arrest and the crucifixion and then knowing he was dead and putting him in that tomb, there is a sense in which I can sympathize with Thomas that I wouldn't want to get my hopes up when they said we saw him alive either. Have you ever had your hopes crushed and somebody comes in and offers you a little glimmer of hope? And you, you almost don't even want to take that, do you? you? You just would rather just stay in your misery and not get your hopes up only to have them crushed again. I can sympathize with Thomas. Have you ever read through the Old Testament and you read the story of the children of Israel coming out of the wilderness or out of Egypt and, and through the Red Sea and they get into the wilderness and they start to grumble and complain, you brought us out here to die. And God says, why, why are you an unbelieving and a stiff-necked generation? And you read that story and you say to yourself, I would never have been in unbelief like that. How can these people be so unbelieving? They saw the miracles. They saw the proof of what God was doing, and he told them, and yet they remained hard-hearted in unbelief. Uh, unbelieving. What a, what a slow-to-belief, stiff-necked generation these stupid people were. You ever thought to yourself that? I don't think that any one of us, in Thomas' situation, given Thomas's background and what Thomas knew to be true and his experiences, I don't think that any one of us can say that we would have handled anything differently than Thomas did. In some respect, I can sympathize with him because all of us find ourselves being unbelieving at times. Look, doubt and skepticism and unbelief are the natural condition of the human heart. In the face of overwhelming evidence, in the face of overwhelming light, doesn't matter how much evidence is presented, doubt and skepticism and unbelief come to us naturally. That is the natural condition. God must do something in the human heart to turn that around so that that belief actually happens as opposed to unbelief. And that is the work of God. It is the gift of faith. We're talking about this today in Sunday school. That, that, that God gives to his people the gift of faith. It is a gift that God gives. And God must do something in the heart to change that heart. Because unbelief, that comes to us naturally. In Thomas's situation, you would be reading this. It would be Jim's name instead of Thomas's name. Or you could insert your name there. Because we are slow to believe what God has said. And we deserve and need that reproof. But once presented with the evidences, evidence, Thomas's declaration is this. My Lord... And my God. And don't miss the statement of deity that is there. He is calling Jesus Christ his Theos, his God. He is the Theumu, is the Greek. He is the God of me. He is my God. And keep in mind, this comes from a monotheistic Jew. Thomas is not, Thomas is not adding Jesus to the pantheon of gods. He's not adding Jesus to the collection of gods that he worshiped and acknowledged. Thomas has come to understand that this one standing before him is the God of the Old Testament manifested in the flesh. He is my God. He is Jehovah. And we can say that with utter confidence. Imagine that in that moment, Thomas remembered every promise and statement that Jesus had made during his ministry. I and the Father are one. All judgment has been given to me. I am the bread of life. And he who believes in me will never perish. 
I am the living water. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door. I am the I am. And unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Before Abraham ever existed, I eternally was. And now when he sees Jesus standing before him, resurrected, that is the vindication of every claim Jesus had ever made. And Thomas realizes he is the I am. And he can say with boldness and with confidence, this is the Lord of me. And this is the God of me. Our God was manifested in human flesh. And he lived a perfect life. And he died a perfect death. And he paid the price for sinners. And he rose again from the dead. And he presented himself alive to his disciples with many convincing proofs. And they have written it down for us that we might believe upon him. And that we might confess with Thomas, he is my Lord and he is my God. Because this is the Christian confession. This is what it means to be a Christian. You cannot be a Christian and you are not a Christian if you do not believe that the great I am, the one God and the only God, was manifested in the flesh and he lived among us and he died on the cross and he rose again. This is the Christian confession. He is my Lord and he is my God. That is the deity of Jesus Christ. It is a perfect way for John to end this book. But he doesn't end this book that way. He's got a whole other chapter. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father... You are, you are good to us beyond what we deserve. You have provided more evidence than is necessary for the unbeliever to know that your word is true. And you hold them accountable for what they reject and for the light that they reject. And it is our earnest prayer, the prayer of your people, that if there are any who hear these words and read this passage, that they may be believing and that you would draw them to yourself, overwhelm them with the evidence and the truth of your word. Thank you that you have proved once and for all that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our God by raising your son from the dead. He is our eternal God in human flesh, and it is our joy and delight to worship him and to adore him and to know that in Jesus Christ is uh, dwells all the fullness of, of the Godhead in bodily form. In Jesus Christ is everything that can be known and seen about God. Thank you for this. And we gladly bow the knee and our hearts to you. And thank you for your grace and your goodness and your kindness to us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.